Igitur pastis, kesó, petré, ele mitai, eljusque, exerkitus, grauishi. Thus, after Peter the Hermit's departure, and the very great disaster which befell his army, and then, a short while after the cruel massacre of the army led by Gottschalk the priest, Indeed, after the misfortune of Emiko and the obliteration of his army cruelly carried out in the kingdom of Hungary at the gate of Moshon, after all this, Godfrey, Duke of the Realm of Lorraine, a most noble man, and his brother of the same womb, Baldwin, Warner of Grez, a relative of that very same Duke, Baldwin of Bork, Henry of Esch, and his brother Godfrey, very brave men and very illustrious princes. In the middle of August of the same year, made the journey by the direct route to Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to History of the Ultramare, episode 2.16, The Peasant's Crusade, again. Or as I almost called it, that one The Suicide Squad meme with Idris Elba Bloodsport saying he does exactly what I do, and John Cena Peacemaker adding, but better, with uh, Idris Elba as Peter the Hermit and John Cena as Godfrey of Bouillon. He does exactly what I do, but better. That's right, we're continuing our coverage of Godfrey of Bouillon, future first ruler of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. And I promise, eventually, I'll explain why I keep calling him first ruler and not first king. Although I guess you can go check his Wikipedia page for an answer. And hey, while you're busy Wikipedia searching, why not go and give me a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you're hearing my voice through? I'll wait. Did you do it? I hope so. All right. Let's get to the show. Last time, we talked about Godfrey's background, primarily his mother's family, the Ardenverdin clan, particularly Godfrey's grandfather, Godfrey the Bearded, and his uncle, Godfrey the Hunchback, and their careers in the region of Lorraine, as well as elsewhere in what would come to be known as the Holy Roman Empire. And also, how Godfrey came to both inherit the family lands in Lorraine, including the Castle of Bouillon, which gave him his name, and be named Duke of Lower Lorraine by the German Emperor, Henry IV. As I mentioned, Godfrey's ties to Henry IV have often led historians to be shocked at his decision to participate in the First Crusade, preached by Pope Urban II, public enemy number one in imperial circles. Take, for example, how Thomas Asbridge introduces Godfrey of Bouillon in his book, The First Crusade, A New History. Quote, 
It is a striking testament to the power of the crusading message unleashed by Urban II that it also stirred the hearts of men who, before 1095, had been avowed enemies of the reform papacy. One such, Duke Godfrey of Bouillon, from the region of Lotharingia, stood entirely outside the network of papal supporters who formed the backbone of crusade recruitment. He had no history of collaboration with the reform party, nor any known connections to the Fidelis Beati Petri. In fact, he was openly hostile to the First Crusade's grand patron, Matilda of Tuscany. A staunch ally to Henry IV of Germany, Godfrey had actually participated in the Siege of Rome. In spite of all this, he took the cross. End quote. However, as much as I love Asperger's book, I feel this is a very surface-level view of Godfrey's position, which misses a lot of key aspects about his family history. For example, take his grandfather, Godfrey the Bearded, a previous Duke of Lower Lorraine, who Godfrey of Bouillon continued to stress a connection to throughout his ducal career. Godfrey the Bearded wasn't exactly a Fidelis Beati Petri, as that was really after his time, but he was the most important ally of the Reform Papacy during the 1050s and 1060s. Hell, his brother, Godfrey of Bouillon's great-uncle, had been a Reform Pope, Pope Stephen IX. And Godfrey the Bearded's son and successor, Godfrey of Bouillon's uncle, from whom he had inherited his title and lands, Godfrey the Hunchback, might have eventually turned against Pope Gregory VII, but he had once been considered a close enough ally for Gregory to assume Godfrey the Hunchback would provide key military support for Gregory's proto-crusade. And he had been married to, as Ashbridge puts it, First Crusade's grand patron, Matilde di Canossa, the Margravine of Tuscany who was also his stepsister and Godfrey the Bearded's stepdaughter. Their marriage hadn't worked out, but in fact, Godfrey of Bouillon's conflicts with Matilde di Canossa were not really ideological in nature. They actually stemmed from arguments over inheritance rights to Godfrey the Hunchback's properties. And that's just Godfrey's mother's family. On his father's side, Godfrey of Bouillon had other connections to the Reform Papacy. His father, Eustace II, Count of Boulogne in northern France, had participated in the Norman invasion of England in 1066, officially sanctioned by Reform Pope Alexander II. Coincidentally, one of the popes that Godfrey the Bearded had aided in seizing the papal office, in line with the new Reform Papacy policy that popes should be elected by cardinal bishops. The Bayeux Tapestry, which shows the invasion, appears to also show Godfrey's father holding up the papal banners. And Godfrey's brother, Eustace III, also Count of Boulogne, had close feudal ties to Robert Curthose, Duke of Normandy, as well as Robert II, Count of Flanders, who both led major armies in the First Crusade. We'll get to them eventually, don't worry. So, to say Godfrey of Bouillon had no ties to the Reform Papacy is kind of a stretch. And even in his own career, there had been previous religious decisions that can be seen as primers for taking the cross. As I mentioned, Godfrey's closest ally during the 1070s, Bishop Henry of Liege, had been the first to proclaim the peace of God in the Kingdom of Germany. And as we've talked about many times by now, there is a direct line between the restrictions the peace of God placed on lay warfare and the concept of waging war in the name of the church. And there is one last phenomenon to discuss that, regardless of what effect it actually had on Godfrey, would greatly shape the memory of his participation in the First Crusade. Peter the Hermit and his Peasants' Crusade. See, the armies for the Peasants' Crusade all formed in the same region Godfrey Bouillon was based in, northern France and western Germany, by which I mean the Low Countries and the Rhineland, basically. 
the kingdom of Germany was kind of swole in this era. Peter himself was likely from Amiens in northern France, or somewhere around there. His lieutenant, so to speak, Walter Sansavoir, was from Boissy Sansavoir, also in northern France. And as we talked about in episode 2.7, many nobles from western Germany were riled to action as Peter's army passed through. Many of these were the main architects of the Jewish pogroms we discussed in episode 2.8, which occurred primarily in the Rhineland, but also spread into eastern France. And Godfrey fits right in with this band of folks. He was a western German noble with close ties to northern French aristocracy. Peter's mission would have been very attractive to him for various reasons. And as we discussed back in episode 2.8, Godfrey actually also threatened to carry out his own massacre of Jews. According to the Solomon Bar Simpson Chronicle, Godfrey made a vow to, quote, go on this journey only after avenging the blood of the crucified one by shedding Jewish blood and completely eradicating any trace of those bearing the name Jew, thus assuaging his own burning wrath, end quote. In response, a certain Rabbi Kalonimos, who was later brutally murdered at Mainz, wrote to the German emperor, Henry IV, who was in Italy, and Henry forbade Godfrey from carrying out his planned massacre. But the Jewish community of Cologne, fearing he'd go back on his word, still paid him off. It is worth noting here that the accuracy of this claim is a bit debatable. As I mentioned back in episode 2.8, the authorship of these Hebrew chronicles is difficult to pin down, and the extant copies are almost certainly not the originals. A later copyist might have added in Godfrey of Bouillon, because by that point, his name was synonymous with crusading. Still, as I mentioned last time, Godfrey of Bouillon was big into extortion. And Henry IV is actually an important element here. As we talked about in episode 2.8, the Jewish communities of the Rhineland were directly subordinate to the German emperor. Threatening them was in a way a challenge to the power of the emperor. An emperor who couldn't really afford to have his power challenged. Some sources seem to indicate that the most prominent leader of the massacres of 1096, Count Emico, may his bones be ground to dust, used his attacks against Jewish communities as a way to carve out independence from imperial oversight. So this sort of behavior fits right in with the accounts we have of Godfrey in the 1090s that we explored last time, especially his extortion and later denunciation of the imperially aligned bishop, Otbert of Liege, in the early 1090s. His behavior during that whole kerfuffle speaks to a lack of confidence in his ability to directly challenge the German emperor, but nevertheless, a desire to do so. There would have been a few reasons for this. One, by the 1090s, the reform papacy was making a comeback, as we talked about in episode 2.4. Not only had Pope Urban taken Rome and removed Henry's anti-pope, but Henry's very own son and wife had denounced him as a depraved monster. Godfrey might have felt the time was right to squeeze what he could out of the weakened emperor. Remember, Godfrey of Bouillon was not a particularly powerful duke. Thanks in part to his grandfather's rebellion, Lower Lorraine had become quite chaotic, and power had actually devolved to the bishops, like Otbert. A religious shakeup might also allow Godfrey to replace certain troublesome clergy members installed by Henry, and seize power before their reform papacy replacements found their sea legs. This is all hypothetical, of course, because, as per usual, we've got no direct evidence of what was going through Godfrey's head when he took up the cross. 
The interaction with the Jews tells us he made his decision either in late 1095 or early 1096, but he apparently didn't feel like participating in the Peasants' Crusade. This might imply some more direct connection with Urban, as Godfrey chose to stick to the date of departure set by the pontiff. That's might imply though. As we talked about in episode 2.7, Albert of Aachen, who's our main source for both the Peasants' Crusade and Godfrey of Bouillon's journey to Constantinople, says that Peter the Hermit was the originator of the crusade. From the perspective of most in Lorraine, this might very well have been the case, but given Godfrey's close family ties in northern France, which is where Pope Urban was actually from, I highly doubt he had no contact with the Pope. We can really view Godfrey's decision to crusade as one more expression of a general explosion of support for the First Crusade throughout the region that had once been Northern Francia. There are traditionally eight major armies of the First Crusade, with the exception of two, the armies of Raymond of Toulouse and Bohemond of Tarento, the rest all came from northern France or the Low Countries. There's obviously the army of Godfrey of Bouillon, but there's also the army of Robert Curthose, Duke of Normandy, the army of Robert, Count of Flanders, who I just mentioned, and the army of Hugh of Remondois, and the army of Stephen of Blois. And as I mentioned, Peter the Hermit and Walter Sansevoir also came from northern France. Why is this? Why was northern Francia so overwhelmed with the desire to crusade? Well, it might have less to do with the region itself and more to do with a domino effect that tended to cause ripples of crusading fervor throughout kinship networks. Both northern France and western Germany, including Lorraine, were frontier zones where family ties were especially essential to building alliances. This made them prime targets for the spreading of crusading behavior. As Jonathan Riley Smith puts it in First Crusaders, quote, a feature of recruitment to the First Crusade, and to crusading in general, until at least the middle of the 12th century, was the way many of those who took the cross were clustered into certain families. There has been debate how far late 11th and 12th century families were extended, and it has been pointed out that, as far as property was concerned, rights and obligations tended to involve the closely related, even if the group of individuals recognized as kindred could assume many different forms expanding and contracting according to circumstances. In the context of crusading, it seems to have been expanded, but even taking a narrow view of family relationships confined to brothers, fathers, and sons, the concentrations of crusading relations are striking." End quote. So, just for some of the connections here, Godfrey of Bouillon's brother, Eustace, Count of Boulogne, also crusaded, likely in the army of Robert Curthose, whose brother-in-law, Stephen of Blois, also crusaded, Meanwhile, Robert, Count of Flanders, who also crusaded, was a member of the same house as Godfrey of Bouillon and Eustace III, the House of Flanders. They all traced their lineage back to Judith of Flanders, a great-granddaughter of Charlemagne, and her husband, Baldwin Ironarm. These links even spread out to crusaders from other regions. Robert Curthose was also married to Sibella of Coversana, a daughter of Geoffrey of Brindisi, Bowman of Tarento's cousin. And of course, another of Bowman of Tarento's cousins, Matilda, had been the second wife of Raymond of Toulouse. Now, I'm not saying that these family ties were the main motivational factor. Just as we did with Raymond of Toulouse and Bowman of Tarento, we have to accept that there were likely multiple factors at work here. It's hard to know why exactly Godfrey decided to participate. 
we do know his condition in Lower Lorraine was not exactly optimal, and the participation of various kin members in his crusade made it a lot easier for him to sign up and expect that he would have support. After all, it's one thing to sign up for a random armed pilgrimage with a bunch of strangers, but it's quite another to sign up if you know your brothers and your cousins are also going. And that was Godfrey's situation. Both of his brothers participated in the First Crusade. As I mentioned, his eldest brother, Eustace, traveled with his liege, Robert Kerhose, Duke of Normandy, while Godfrey's younger brother, Baldwin, traveled with him. Oh, Baldwin. We'll have plenty to say about him in the future. Now, as for Godfrey's preparations, it was expensive to crusade, and Godfrey was not particularly wealthy. He was forced to sell or mortgage nearly all of his properties in Lorraine, including the Castle of Bouillon, which he mortgaged to Bishop Albert of Liège for 1,500 silver marks. I am never going to financially recover from this. Eh, in reality, Otbert got the money by ransacking a church. Records indicate his goons took the gold altar and various gold crosses. Otbert had been scheming to get his hands on the castle for a while, though, and Godfrey might have just accepted that he wouldn't be able to hold on to it anyway. There's an interesting anecdote from around this time that I think sheds a lot of light on what preparing to go on crusade was like. So a lot of these transactions, the selling and mortgaging of various properties, they were actually carried out by Godfrey's mother, Ida, who came to Lorraine to negotiate with Otbert, and write up charters and whatnot. When she went to Bouillon, she was shocked to learn that the Priory of St. Peter had been destroyed, and its monks had been sent to their mother house, the Abbey of St. Hubert. This Priory had been set up by her father, Godfrey the Bearded, so she decided to investigate and find out what had happened. The abbot of St. Hubert informed her that first her brother, Godfrey the Hunchback, and then her son, Godfrey of Bouillon, had bankrupted the priory by seizing its revenues. The abbot then reminded Ida that the abbey of St. Hubert had a papal bull signed by Pope Alexander II, which stated that anyone who attacked the abbey would be subject to excommunication. This put the fear of God in Ida, not only for her son, but for her brother, who was already dead. Luckily for Ida, the abbot just happened to have a solution. Her son, Godfrey, could give the abbey of St. Hubert a church that he had in his possession in nearby Bezitti, and take financial responsibility of providing for monks from the abbey to go run the church. This would save not only his soul, but Godfrey the Hunchback's immortal soul. Ida and Godfrey agreed, and the church, which eventually had to be rebuilt in the 1700s, still bears the same name, St. Hubert of Bezitti. It might seem strange to us that in order to go fight a war in the name of his church, Godfrey would run around seizing the revenues from uh, religious institutions. But that was the central tension of the era. These knightly aristocrats were used to pillaging and raiding for money, which they then used to build churches and sponsor abbeys to pay penance for all the pillaging and raiding. It was why something like the crusade appealed to them so much. It was war that not only didn't have to be expiated, but which could actually grant them remission of their sins. A total win-win. All in all, it seems Godfrey converted nearly all of his wealth into silver, most of which he likely transported in ingots. But he seems to have minted quite a few coins as well. Silver coins found in Russia seem to match the minting style of Liège. On the front, they show the image of a man with long curly hair, a raised sword, 
and a war banner. On the back is printed Godefridus Jerusalemitanus, Godfrey the Jerusalemite, a common title for pilgrims to Jerusalem. These would seem to be coins that Godfrey used while traveling through Central and Eastern Europe to buy supplies and shit like that. And they somehow found their way north to Russia. Now, later sources claim Godfrey made an oath never to return from the Holy Land. This is almost certainly false. Documents indicate he left open the option to repurchase many of his properties, including Bouillon, once slash if he ever came back. And he actually would never give up his ducal title. He took it to his grave and never named a proper successor. This actually also speaks to the relative weakness of the title in the 1090s. It was only when Godfrey died that Henry IV bothered to find a replacement for him, after five years of a dukeless duchy. Apart from his younger brother, Godfrey was accompanied by a wide array of counts from throughout Lorraine. All in all, he had about a hundred knights under his command. But obviously, many more foot soldiers, camp attendants, and a sizable host of pilgrims. Despite his ties to the northern French contingents of the First Crusade, Godfrey chose to follow the same route other western German armies had, the traditional pilgrim's route to Constantinople, the same route that just months before had been traveled by the various contingents of the Peasants' Crusade. It fits that we now have to go back to the same main source that we used for the Peasants' Crusade, who also gave us our opening today, our good old friend Albert of Aachen. As historian Simon John puts it in the same biography of Godfrey I quoted from last time, quote, With his departure on the First Crusade, Godfrey of Bouillon emerged from the relative obscurity that had characterized his career in Lotharingia. From this point in his career on, Albert of Aachen's account is indispensable. This author made Godfrey, whom he described as Duke of the Realm of Lotharingia and a most noble man, the chief protagonist of his account of the First Crusade. Of all the Latin chroniclers of the expedition, only Albert accumulated significant information regarding Godfrey's march to Constantinople. According to Albert, Godfrey departed on the 15th of August, 1096, or within a few days of it, stating that he and his contingent were on the road to Jerusalem by mid-August. End quote. Mid-August was not only the official papal departure date, but the point at which various members of the forces under Count Emigo and the preachers Volkmar and Goltschalk were fleeing back west after being crushed by the Hungarian forces under King Kalman. See episode 2.9. As I mentioned then, on their way back, they ran into Godfrey's forces, and tons of these pilgrims and knights decided to go try their luck under his banner. Even before this point, Godfrey's army was likely indistinguishable from that of someone like Count Emigo. Not exactly a good look for pulling up to the borders of Hungary. And this is where our opening picks up. A lot of what Albert of Aachen tells us echoes his previous explanation of the course of the Peasants' Crusade. He says that Godfrey had heard from the new additions to his army about what had happened to them in Hungary. You know, getting smashed by Hungarian forces outside the walls of Moshon. And Godfrey figured he had to avoid the same fate. But... He had an ace up his sleeve. One of his vassals, a certain Godfrey of Esch, knew King Kalman of Hungary personally. Albert says Godfrey of Bouillon had previously sent Godfrey of Esch on an embassy to Hungary, but this is really unlikely. As we talked about, Godfrey's sphere of influence was limited to the castle of Bouillon prior to the First Crusade. And Kalman had only become king of Hungary in that same year. 
It does seem that Godfrey of Esh had somehow interacted with King Kalman before, though, and was able to convince him to meet with Godfrey. And Kalman, of course, sent his own envoys to Godfrey, explaining that he had killed the previous contingents because they had been absolute dicks. My words. Then, according to Albert, King Kalman and Godfrey of Bouillon met, and Godfrey somehow convinced Kalman that this wouldn't be a repeat of what had happened at Moshon, or Zemun, or Belgrade. I guess Belgrade was technically in the Roman Empire, but still. And Kalman agreed to the same deal he had struck with Walter Sansevoir and Peter the Hermit. Unhindered passage through Hungary and access to markets. By now, access to markets would be less problematic as it was after the harvest, which was of course why Pope Urban had recommended that date in the first place. But still, Kalman was either a super forgiving dude or a real idiot. If I had been in his shoes, there's no way I would have allowed any more crazy armed pilgrimages passing through my kingdom. These fuckers were insane in the membrane. But Kalman apparently trusted them. Uh, he did of course have a condition though. Hostages. And he wouldn't settle for any minor counts or anything like that. He wanted a big fish. Godfrey's brother, Baldwin. Godfrey agreed of course. But when he went back to camp and tried to explain the whole thing, Baldwin wasn't having it. The relationship between Godfrey and his baby brother Baldwin was very similar to that between Bohemon and his nephew, Tancred. Both Tancred and Baldwin are often tagged with that label I keep bringing up, Juventus, youth. Here's the thing, as I've said multiple times, this term seems to have meant something different for our sources. For example, Baldwin was likely in his 30s and married. And now, I'm not trying to upset any 30-year-old millennials right now. You can definitely be young at heart, guys. Go and buy as many Funko Pop figurines as you want. But I'm still not going to classify you as youths. Really sorry, guys. I'm just a year away from 30 myself. I know. It hurts. Baldwin wasn't really a youth in terms of age, though. He was a youth in terms of his social position. He didn't really have a decent title of his own. He was still a knight looking and hunting for the right spot to make his name. And while he, out of necessity, had to travel with a larger army, like his brothers, he also had a very independent spirit. Again, a lot like Tancred of Oatville. Eventually, when Godfrey said he would act as a hostage if his baby brother wouldn't, Baldwin was convinced to go along with it. And he and his wife were handed over to King Kalman. This was enough to guarantee the safe passage of the army through Hungary, with King Kalman trailing close behind along with his elite cavalry and the hostages. Finally, they reached the destroyed city of Zemun, which again Albert calls Malawila, Evilville, right on the border with the Roman Empire. Now, the last time a band of armed pilgrims showed up on the shores of the Sava River, they had ended up sacking Belgrade, attacking Niche, and just being a general nuisance all the way down to Constantinople. So it should come as no surprise that the arrival of Godfrey's army warranted imperial forces. Albert says they were there to block the passage, which I don't entirely believe, as Alexios was still open to accepting crusaders to solve his problems in Anatolia. But it's possible that the governor of Nish acted on his own and sent some forces? However, I find it much more likely that the imperial forces were there to corral the armed pilgrims, much as they had done with Walter Sansevoir and Peter the Hermit's forces. 
Whatever the case, they were menacing enough that the army decided to send the military forces as an advance guard so that everyone else could cross safely. Remember, I say army, but this was a mobile town with tons of regular pilgrims along for the ride. Albert doesn't say there was a battle or anything, he just says they managed to cross safely, and the imperial forces that were threatening them seemed to vanish. So again, it's not clear what was going on here. Keep in mind who Albert's sources were, primarily soldiers returning from the expedition. One, their memories were probably eroded, and two, they didn't necessarily have the most accurate strategic information that the leaders of the army had. All we know for sure is that the army succeeded in crossing the Sava River. And, once the army had exited Hungary, King Kalman returned the hostages to Godfrey, including Baldwin and his family. As I mentioned, he was married to an Anglo-Norman noblewoman, Godehilde of Tosni, but it's unclear if the couple had kids. William of Tyre seems to hint that Baldwin might have been gay, so maybe Godehilde was just his beard? I don't know, we'll, we'll talk about Baldwin in the future, don't worry. After crossing the Sava, the army made its way to Belgrade, the next stop. There, they rested in the burnt-out remains of the city. And soon enough, they were greeted by envoys from the Roman Emperor, Alexios Komnenos. Albert doesn't explicitly mention any connection between these envoys and the army they'd encountered back at the river. So, who knows where these guys came from. It was now early November just a week or two after the Battle of Civitat, which had destroyed the forces of the Peasants' Crusade in Anatolia. And it was becoming increasingly clear to everyone that this armed pilgrimage business was risky for all involved. Rumors were already flying about the untrustworthy Greeks and that conniving emperor of theirs. After all, why had the Peasants' Crusade met such a violent end? Other events would soon transpire that would make Godfrey very suspicious of Alexius's true intentions. And those in Constantinople were no less wary. Godfrey's army presented as much of a threat as Peter the Hermit's forces had. Alexios had managed to avoid total disaster shepherding those pilgrims across the Bosporus. But could he pull the same trick off twice? And considering the total failure of that expedition, was it even worth it? In November, it was actually starting to seem like Alexios had bitten off a bit more than he could chew, because Godfrey wasn't the only crusader he had to deal with. Around the same time Godfrey was entering Belgrade, Hugh, the Count of Vermandois, the brother of the King of France, was arriving in Constantinople. Hugh's forces were much smaller than Godfrey's. Instead of a massive circus tent, he had at his command a group made up of mostly elite knights, probably around 50. Hugh had traveled from France, where they had actually absorbed some of the armies that had carried out Jewish massacres in the Rhineland. Remember I mentioned a few of them had decided to go west into France instead of east uh, to, you know, the Holy Land? Well, they had failed to catch up with Emiko and had instead glommed onto Hugh's army, which had then traveled south through Italy. It was knights associated with his contingent that had caused the spectacle at Amalfi that we talked about in episode 2.14, the display that had led Bohemond to take up the cross. And speaking of Bohemond, in November, he was also arriving in the Roman Empire and beginning to make his incredibly slow journey to Constantinople. Alexis's main strategy here seems to have been one of division. He had to deal with each of these armies on their own, because if they joined up, who knows what they might get up to. 
so Alexios had made sure to quickly escort Hugh of Vermandois to Constantinople, before Bohemond made his crossing. He then put the count in what amounted to very comfortable house arrest. With Hugh's army and the remnants of the Peasants' Crusade in Constantinople, Bohemond of Tarento scaring the bejesus out of everyone in the empire's western territories, Godfrey of Bouillon coming down from Belgrade in the north, and two other armies making their way from Europe, this was getting to be an awful lot of bowling pins to juggle. And luckily for us, we have great sources that are totally unbiased and clearly relate to us everything that happened in exacting, minute detail. <laughs> yeah, right. We leave Latin Europe behind for now. Next time on History of the Ultramare, we'll catch up with Alexios Komlinos in Constantinople and try to figure out what he was up to and what were the actual terms of the deals he struck with the armed pilgrims swarming his empire. He'd had a few months to acclimate to the final outcome of whatever his envoys had asked Urban for nearly two years ago at the Council of Piacenza. And in late 1096, early 1097, Alexios was going to have to once more rely on the twin pillars of Roman power that Mikhail Pselos had written about. Honors and gold. A whole lot of gold. Whatever happened to Mikhail Pselos? I know he was closely associated with the rule of Mikhail Lukas. He had been the guy's teacher, but like, he just dropped off the face of the earth. Let me do a, a quick wiki search here. Yeah, uh, Wikipedia says he probably died in the 1070s, a couple of years before Alexis's coup. Although, he might have survived as late as 1096, it says. I kind of like to think about Celos in 1096, watching all this unfold and dying of shock 